Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. This is episode 78 already. Wow. I'm Ken Levine, and you know how last week we talked about how do you know if something is funny? Well, imagine how much harder it is to determine that if... The comedy is in a different language. Bill Diamond is my guest this week. He's a very fascinating guy. He's a longtime TV comedy writer and producer. He worked on Wings, and for a number of years, he was an executive producer of Murphy Brown during its heyday. And over the last several years, he has done something rather unique. He has consulted and produced situation comedies in Russia. Now, you talk about a culture clash. (laughs) How do you produce a sitcom when you can't speak the language, when you don't really know the sensibility of the audience, you don't know what's funny necessarily? How do you put that together? It's a fascinating adventure that he has been on the last few years, and we are going to be talking to Bill about that. Also, since he produced Murphy Brown during its heyday, we got into a very lively discussion about reboots, specifically, of course, the reboot of Murphy Brown, but also all of the other reboots. So a lot of good stuff this week on Hollywood and Levine, and it starts now. Okay, Billy, first of all, we're going to just bounce around a little bit, and uh, I want to jump forward in your career. Now, in 1997, there were 65 half-hour sitcoms. Wow. Then you flash forward like six years, and there's like 32 of them. (laughs) You know, reality shows emerged, and things changed, and it was kind of a strange time for comedy writers, and you did something very unique. You actually got yourself involved in international situation comedy. Yeah, but that didn't come immediate. I had quite a string of failure that got me there. Um, Pilots and development deals and things like that? Yeah, development deals, you know, that progressively got smaller. Right. Uh, (laughs) And, um, yeah, so, I I mean, I had had fun. I did a lot of great work. But, you know, like anything, there's... There's uh, they only pick a certain number of shows. So yeah, some uh, of my best work is just sitting up in the drawer here, yeah, and uh, you know, a little five dusty. people can read it. <laughs> <laughs> Who gets the job after you pass away? Of what are they? I mean, isn't that a big burden? Uh, uh, of all of the scripts, you mean? Yeah, I mean, of all your stuff, the, the history, the archive of your life. 
They're going to go to the um, to Cooperstown to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Those cheer scripts are going to yeah, yeah, they're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, they'll probably be in the Gerald Ford Museum somewhere. I just picture my kids going. Oh, I feel terrible about doing this, and then just dumping it all yeah, on the trash. Right. Exactly. Or they'll sell it on eBay. I mean, you get a good feeling yeah. when you look at it. I mean, yours will have value on eBay. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't know how much money I'm going to get for the tortellis. <laughs> yeah, you never know. <laughs> and those aftermath scripts are not going to go like hotcakes. Uh, so, so I, yeah, I had I had the requisite deals after Murphy, and um, you know, like was happy doing that. And then um, a, a number of years went by where you know I was doing one-offs at this point, not under a deal. And then I guess back in 2000, well, 2011, I was approached by Sony to consult in Moscow for Russian TV. Okay. And and that's the only place that I've worked internationally. Well, actually, that's not true. I've worked in England as well. But we have the same language. So it's there aren't quite the same uh, impediments. So what is that like? Because you go over to Moscow, and my assumption, of course, is that this sitcom is in Russian. You probably don't speak Russian. How did you work this out? It's both the most rewarding experience I've had in the industry and probably the most maddening <laughs> because you you never quite knew what success looked like because even <laughs> when when something was done well, you you really had no idea if it was being done well <laughs> or if it was being done up to your own standards. If you understood it in English, if you would have liked it, the language barrier, the culture barrier, you had to retain a certain distance from the work or the questions would overwhelm you. And so, you know, as a writer, you you really want to dig into something and understand it and and do your best. And, And in Russia, I'm not saying that I didn't do my best and that they weren't doing their best, but there's an unknowability to the whole thing. It's right. kind of it's kind of zen in a way. You had to I had to get to a certain place where acceptable didn't equal hack work. I simply had to accept them at their own level. I had to learn what was actually important to me, what breakdown storytelling to. All right, what they have a whole different way of um speaking. This is my understanding. I mean, you might find this interesting. I don't Yes, I, don't I do. Someone else may not. But uh <laughs> so what I learned, and I learned it several years after I probably should have, but um, I worked from 2011 till the present, but, but the bulk of the work was 2011 to 2017, let's say, and probably three years into this, um, someone explained to me, and all your Russian scholars in your audience can, can mail you. And there are many of them, <laughs> yeah. Someone explained to me that there is a huge narrative difference between Russia, the way Russians tell a story and the way Americans tell a story. And as soon as they explained this to me, the, the light bulb went off and I realized, oh, that's why I keep getting pushed back on certain things or that's why I don't really see why the story isn't acceptable. So how Russia do they audience. tell stories differently? So an American or a, 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 let's say a, um, a, a Western approach okay. to a story is very aspirational. You have a person, man or a woman, there's an obstacle that man or woman rises up, slays the dragon, restores order, and things get better. And my understanding of the Russian narrative 
and again address the emails to Ken. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, my understanding of the Russian narrative, and, and, and I think this goes back to some old Russian children's story. And it was basically there's a f- frog, and the frog is living in this the most disgusting shit covered existence. But it's familiar shit covered existence. And something happens to the frog that makes the frog's life just a little bit more miserable. He doesn't do anything. And then the fro- something happens again to the frog that makes it just a little bit more miserable. And then something next happens that makes the, the frog's life so much worse that he is driven to act. And he defeats the, the person doing whatever it is that, that he's doing just so that the frog can go back to its sh- <laughs> shitty little life in the shitty little bog. I'm probably overstating it, but I mean, the idea being familiarity, stasis, is, is, is traditionally, my understanding, is what they were looking for. So the Western aspirational idea of the, of the Western hero, things can get better. America, based on things can get better. Things will always get better. You just have to work at it. My understanding of the narrative over there is that they, the, the more things stay the same, the, the more comfortable they feel. That's success. As long as things don't get shittier, that's a hero. So when you apply that to storytelling, everything we do, and I don't know if you realize it or, or I even realized it, but it's all based on you act on something and you make it better. But when that's not your baseline of storytelling... You almost don't know how to... You have to relearn how to tell a story. Right, yeah. So it seems to me, then, if I'm coming up with a story, whatever story I work out, at the end, the Cossacks come and kill everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Save it, save it. Yeah, you know, know, Finding Nemo, the Cossacks come. (laughs) You know, Little Mermaid, the Cossacks come. Well, I mean, if you think about their history, the Russian history, it's... I mean, they've been oppressed for a thousand years. They've had just a string of very powerful, ruthless leaders. And sometimes the best they could hope for was just things not getting worse. And, and especially during the Soviet period, this idea was, was sort of driven into the people I work with, their parents and their grandparents, of, you know, just, I, I like the way it is, just don't make it worse. <laughs> How do you know that the comedy works? I mean, were these shows multi-camera? Were there audiences? The shows that I walk, worked on were all uh, single camera. Okay, you know, which means shot like a movie. Shot like a movie, yeah. uh, without an audience. I mean, if you've... No I'm, laugh track, I assume? No laugh track. Okay. People say that, oh, Russian, they make jokes about, oh, Russian's sense of humor. And Russians are funny. They like the same stuff we do. In fact, the, like the first day I got there, uh, I had the table full of these Russian writers. And they asked me what my favorite shows were. And I said, you're not going to know what these shows are. And they said, yeah, let's try us. And, and I said, well, this goes back, I don't know, six years, seven years. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, Louis, Louis, you know, like my favorite show on the air right now. And I thought, there's no way they're going to know what this <laughs> is. They knew it. They knew every episode. Wow. They used to get Louis back there? Well, you can, you, at that point, maybe still, you could get anything. You get it illegally. Right. But, uh, but they, they saw everything and they soaked it up. What they're learning how to do is how to structure stuff. I mean, they, can, they recognize stuff. They love friends, but they're still working towards figuring out how to do friends. <clears throat> and they've figured it out to a great extent, 
but it is all sort of funneled through their own narrative. So I don't always understand why we go one way versus going another way. So to get back to what I was saying before, I'm, I'm never quite balanced when I'm over there. I'm always kind of being, trying to be culture, culturally sensitive, linguistically sensitive. I don't want to be the ugly American going over there and saying this is how we have to do it because it's the way I've done it for 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it was a real delicate dance. Also, I never knew if my – I had very good interpreters, but I never knew if the, the, the meaning of my, what I was saying was actually being conveyed in the way right. that I, right. I hoped – Right. Uh, very good and very good translators, but um, that's a hard job, especially in comedy. How do you translate something so that the humor comes through? So I never quite knew if the blank stares I would get <laughs> were because it wasn't funny <laughs> or because, you know, they just didn't really understand what I was pitching or didn't have a kind of cultural relation to what I was doing. There's, so there's so many layers between me and the final product that you would go crazy if you tried to take the same approach here, uh, there, as you, as you do here. Mm-hmm. There's a there's certain You know attachment. what? We get so many notes now from so many different people. Why not people in Russia giving, <laughs> <laughs> giving us notes too? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, that was the great thing. We really didn't get, it, 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 we didn't get many, um, we didn't get much interference from the network. How many networks do they have? And do they have networks like we do where it's an evening of entertainment programs? Yeah, they have several networks. They don't have cable. Uh, I haven't been there in a year or so, but I don't think things have changed. They don't have cable the way we have cable channels. They're starting to move into the digital world, but like here, no one really knows how to – they haven't really figured it out. They They don't have the sort of the Netflix and the Hulu. They're very quickly moving towards it. Um, but they have the state-owned channels, and then they have the network that I've been working with and my partners over there have been working with called TNT, not related to the one right, here. Right, right. And then there's STS or CTC. It's hard to know because of the Cyrillic, how to pronounce it. <laughs> um, but those are, the, those are two of the biggest, uh, let's call them cable. Okay, channels. so a uh, hit show in Russia how many people are watching? God, you know, that's a great question. I don't know. If you figure they have five times the landmass, uh-huh. I think, something like that, but a fraction of our population. I, but I, they I, don't have 72 different choices. So it's correct. really kind of like going back to 1977 and you can have a 30 share and that's 30 million people. Yeah, but they're getting the same. The, the audience is, is getting as fractured as they are here with, you know, different options that you have. Movies and they, um, you know, they have a movie. Uh, uh, Amedia is uh, the name of a, a streaming service that shows a lot of the American shows like HBO shows and FX shows. But, yeah, their numbers are, are, are way down over there. And they're trying to figure it out. When I was in China... I watched a sitcom, a Chinese sitcom. Obviously, I didn't really understand it, but I could tell that two of the cast members were funny. You know, that they're just some actors that just, even though I don't know exactly what they're saying, 
you just know that they're funny. Funny in what way do you think when you saw them? Were they were they broad funny? And is that why it was easy to perceive? You know, I think it's more that they react funny to what was going on. You just kind of got the sense that there was some something about the presence of certain actors that you just go, oh, you know, that that guy's funny, you know? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I had to um, supervise casting for this uh, the show that I was producing called Civil Marriage, and we we had, it took forever to cast these two lead roles because not all, the actors like to do theater or they like to do movies over there, is my understanding, and they're they're not really. Uh, as interested in television. There's just not the same kind of history. It's only 25 years history. <laughs> wow. It's a wild west yeah, over there in a way. Right, yeah. Um, rapidly becoming like it is here. Uh-huh. And here it's so, things are so structured now. And so I call it, it's very rigid over here. Right. We know how to do it well, but it's very hard to, the funnel is no longer a funnel, it's a straw. Right. There's just a very limited number of ways that it's done here. Over there, Everyone seems to know each other. I imagine it's like Hollywood in the 30s. Everyone knows each other. But we were casting for this show. And that's really tricky because you saw in China, you saw the per- the people, the actors that they selected that they after got, the process. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had to look through all of the people. And you've done plenty of casting in your time. Mm-hmm. You, you realize, you know immediately when someone sucks. Right. And... You also know when you've got a couple of people who are both doing it well, but are doing it in different ways. It was harder on the talented side of things, easier on the sucky side of things. But then you were, I was always left because I'm always questioning this stuff. Am I, am, is there something culturally that I'm not understanding about their performance that this is actually funny to Russians? Right. I don't want to be that chauvinist who comes in and says, well, this is funny in America, so this will be funny in Russia. If you if you really take it seriously, it's uh, it's daunting, and so I had to go through the. I find this funny. Do the other people in here find this funny? And are they finding it funny because it's broad, and it's not going to give me the nuance that I want? So I would say, yeah, there is something universal. I think there's a broad definition for what that universal is. You know, there's a great story about Bob Hope, and it actually applies. One time, Bob Hope was in Israel with his writers, and he had a night off, and so he went to a club. And there was an Israeli comic, an Israeli stand-up comic. And Hope and his writers were standing in the back of the room, and the comic was doing his act, and he was getting big laughs from the crowd, and Bob was laughing. And one of his writers said, Bob, do you speak Hebrew? And he said, no. And he said, well, then what are you laughing? He says, I trust these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of for you, I guess, if you're in a room with three other writers or producers and they all laugh at a performance, you probably go, well, um, okay. Yeah, there's a lot okay. of trust involved. And it's like yeah. seeing a movie at home versus seeing a movie in the theater. Uh, I've seen movies by myself, or at least in, alone in a movie theater, and I've thought, well, that's not funny at all. And then I've heard people who've gone to a, that same movie in a filled movie theater and said it was hilarious. 
you do sort of trust other people around you. I don't know if that means you're being tricked into thinking it's funnier than it is, but mm-hmm. a, a lot, I just, my objective had to kind of change. Uh, it wasn't so much, do I find this funny? Do I find this meaningful? It was more, do they find it funny? Because I was, you know, we were working towards a different audience and I was used to, uh, you know, I didn't understand that audience as well. So you would go over there for chunks of time. Uh, did you have an apartment over there? They just set you up with a hotel. What was it like just living there and were you by yourself? Yeah, I would go over there by myself. There were, at the beginning, there were a handful of Americans that Sony was bringing over. We all got apartments and we got a driver and an interpreter. And so it was kind of a cushy, cushy life. <laughs> and I remember, you know, before I, I left for that first time, the night before I went, I watched uh, the Phil Rosenthal uh, movie. Right, uh, right, where he adapted Everybody Loves right, Raymond right. for Russian audiences. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I remember thinking... Oh no! This is going to be horrible because you know they had Phil was in a, a studio that used to be, I don't know, a meatpacking plant or, a, or a, I don't know what it was, um, a sugar maybe it was a sugar uh, refining factory. And I got there, and what I discovered was it didn't always look the way I was expecting, but it was never. It was interesting. It was just. It was like. Everything through a prism. Like the studio that I worked at, work at, was an old ball bearing plant. Hmm. And you could still see the huge cutouts in the, up top where all the electrical conduit went. And yeah, you're working in a ball bearing factory, but I mean, really, what's the difference? Right. Doing show business. Yeah. 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 So, you know, the experience of, of doing a show in Moscow... If you embraced it, it was kind of glorious in a way. It was, it was a, it, it gave me, and I think the people that I've worked with over there, I think they'd all agree. It, it allowed me to look at my career and this business and the, the the craft of writing from a whole different perspective. You kind of saw what you were doing. You saw what you were doing because it was habit. You saw what was doing what you were doing because it was ritual. And it really kind of stripped down the the whole business for me. That you, interesting, yeah. Like the, yeah. just on a small level, the craft service table. You know, the table where all the food is uh-huh. for the for the cast and, and crew. Borscht and chicken Kiev. <laughs> Not exactly, <laughs> but almost as untasty. Uh, 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 you know, here you could sort of dine out in a you crappy could, way. Definitely, yeah. Uh, from well, crappy. It's decent food. Yeah, there. They had these things um, called it's a, a butterbrot is is a it's a sandwich, but it's not really a sandwich like we'd know. It's just a, a piece of bread with a slab of meat on it, and I don't know, maybe a piece of cheese on it. I can't remember. And you know, people descended on this table where these little butterbrot came out, but that was really it. They drank tea, hot scalding tea out of these really thin plastic cups, so your hand burned when you were drinking it <laughs> and that was kind of it they, and in the writing room no red vines no red vines huh? i would go down to the little canteen and uh and, and sort of buy this staff some candy just to kind of get their blood sugar going uh-huh. get their energy going and they looked at me like i was christ coming down <laughs> because i was just you're gonna give us stuff for free 
Were the people nice that, that oh, you dealt with? And super nice, Did enough yeah. people speak English that you were able to sort of maneuver your way around the laundry mats and no. restaurants? <laughs> no, if you're talking outside the writer's <laughs> yeah. room? Mm-hmm. No, very, I, I think the case, it, it's probably still the same now. Very few, certainly fluent English speakers. And while there are a lot of young people were taught English, certainly during the so- in the Soviet era, which gets you up to about, I don't know, 35, kids around 35, have some knowledge of English. But for the most part, you may find a restaurant that has an English language menu, but for the most part, you're, um, those are really useful because all the horrible spellings of the food. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, but uh, no, for the most part, people don't speak, don't speak English. And in the writer's room, I had an interpreter and... There were one or two people who spoke English, if I was lucky, on a good day. For the most part, you know, staffs that I worked around did not speak English. And so I had to perfect the art. And it actually has affected the way I talk today. Because I was working over there six months out of every year. Wow. For about five or six years. Wow. I had to, not, not always six months at a time, but like two months and then three months and... Everyone does this differently. I don't, you've worked with an interpreter before, so you've, you've got some experience with this, but... I sort of perfected the art. I decided that I wanted, I wanted the meaning of my words to not get lost in the in the speed with which I was talking. So I would I would say a chunk of words, and then say another chunk of words, and then say another chunk of words, so that I would let the interpreter kind of catch up. Now their job is to just be able to keep going. Right. But I was so worried that they weren't going to accurately get it. So I learned this the art of just sort of speaking. In chunks, and and it's kind of annoying because <laughs> I do it now. Because <laughs> who the hell wants to hear someone stop and go like that? What American uh, sitcoms play over there? Do any of them? They don't tend to run American sitcoms. They've s- seen all the American sitcoms just either illegally. I think they've started to crack down on it, but they've all seen Friends. Friends is by far the, their favorite American show. They've they've done adaptations, and that's largely what Sony was doing. Was Comrades. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they've done um, Married with Children and The Nanny and... Um, yeah, where they've done adaptations. Raymond's. Yeah. yeah. In terms of American sitcoms... I think Almost Perfect, Big Wave Daves, <laughs> uh, e- either of those. Aftermath, surprisingly, was a very big hit over there. Big, big hit over there. You know what's really funny is... Just why the Berlin Wall fell. <laughs> Just from the, yeah. the laughter, the vibrations. <laughs> the very first show to syndicate over there was it was a show i usually offer this as a as a trivia question but i won't i won't do that to you the very first american show that they ran was santa barbara now have you ever seen an episode of santa barbara no that was a uh soap opera right correct yeah they because they they're you know the soviet union ended and they suddenly became you know public to the public uh uh, television that wasn't just you know state sponsored mm-hmm. content I guess right. so they had I don't know 400 500 episodes probably more thousand I don't know how long it had been on I've never seen an episode of it but um, it was so wildly popular it's still popular this day to the extent that if you you ask what's the theme song to Santa Barbara they'll they'll start singing it or they they'll 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 you know, they'll just talk uh, about certain characters and certain actors. They're heroes over there. And this is a show that I've never seen before. And, it, you know, it's in a way you can you can you can sort of look down on it. You can patronize them for 
absorbing and, and just consuming this absolute, well, I don't know if it's crap because I've never seen it, but, but it's not, not what I would consider A-list quality uh, content. But they were so desperate for anything that wasn't what they'd been seeing. And secondly, it, Santa Barbara showed this, the ultimate American life. Right. And they ate it up. And it swept the country. And, and incidentally, I believe it's how the viewing habits and the broadcasting habits of Russia started. The show that I produced, for example, we shot 16 episodes. Those episodes air four nights a week on consecutive weeks until you run out of episodes. So it was basically four or five weeks my show was on last year, right. last January, February. Right. I think because they had so many episodes of Santa Barbara and they didn't want to lose the audience, they just ran them every night. And so when you, that's how they got used to watching TV, which is a whole different way. It's almost a hybrid, or at least it's a precursor in a way, to how we binge watch now. Because mm-hmm. you could watch something every night and you, then the next night and the next night. I can imagine, too, um, some Russian people looking at Gilligan's Island and <laughs> saying, yeah. Yeah, you people know quality over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. That was the other thing. You, you just, you, you really, they're always, it's the, it's the uh, headquarters for the whataboutisms, you know, it's, it's especially when you get into politics, which I, I try not to do over there. <laughs> Notice how I've kind of skirted that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there are the people and then there's the government and I try not to, um, like here, I wouldn't want to be tarred with the Trump brush over here. Sure. And and just like over there, I I think people have their own independent attitudes. They don't share them uh, to a great degree publicly because it's in, it's in their their way right, of life. Yeah, not to share that kind of stuff. The Cossacks, stuff. yeah, the we, Cossacks come. We can we can say it over here. But yeah, over there, you, you keep it to yourself to a certain extent. Let me go back and talk a little bit about Murphy Brown because you worked on Murphy Brown and got to the point where you were one of the showrunners. Your thoughts on the reboot of Murphy Brown? That's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'll tell you mine. Okay. okay. I'd rather hear yours. Okay. I'll tell you mine. I don't understand it because since Murphy Brown was so topical, and you guys did really great work, and at Cheers, you were like our competitors. Like every Tuesday, we would come in and, you know, <laughs> bitch about how you guys did this really well and that really well, and this was really funny. We hated you guys for that, by the way. We just hated you. Well, we hated you, but we had no reason to. Right. (laughs) So because you were so topical, the show did not do well in syndication. And as opposed to Cheers or Golden Girls or some of those other shows that have had a continued life on cable Murphy Brown kind of disappeared for a while. So it seems to me that unless you're 50 and older, you really don't know what Murphy Brown is about. And in an age where networks are looking for younger audiences, it just sort of seems like a a strange choice. That being said, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I'm curious. But I'm over 50. Yeah. By a week, people, just by a week. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I I think there's a misnomer about the show. I don't believe it was as political as people remember. We made political references. It's the references that yeah. people just don't know who Dan Quayle is or Curtis LeMay or 
Donald Rumsfeld. That I once sort of made thing. a Ceausescu joke. On oh, well, anything, that, okay. On anything but love. Oh. <laughs> but not on Murphy Brown. And it didn't get through. It didn't get on the air. But uh, Choi Ceausescu. Hey, we did Adolf Manju jokes on, on MASH. So, uh, yeah. yeah. They, uh, the <laughs> seniors' homes must have loved that one. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm curious how it's going to work. If they do choose to be current, things are moving so quickly that I don't know how you can write a script one week and then events change. Boy, that's a great point. You hadn't thought about that, but yeah. true, yeah. So, I mean, what do you do? Do you, how do you do that? You don't want to write it generically because that's not going to appeal to anybody. But you also, you don't want to write it so specific that events overtake it. So they've got a real challenge. They've got a real challenge there, but... You know, we'll see. It's also are... weird to me that they didn't put it on Monday night at 9. Oh, when are they putting it on? I don't it's like know. Thursday night at 9.30. Really? Yeah. What's what's Sid around? Is it like Mom or what's on that night? Um, yeah, Life in Pieces and I think Mom and mm. yeah. I'm, I'm not sure of the schedule. I just remember being very surprised because I just assumed, you know, you're going to put it back in its regular time slot. If Cheers ever comes back, you figure it's going to be Thursday night at 9. Do you think Cheers could ever come no, back? In no, any, in, not no, in any form. No, no, never going to happen. And why is that? I don't think the actors want to do it. I know for a fact Teddy does not. I think too much time has passed. How about a reboot where it's the same bar and new characters? Uh, then you're just rebooting the set. <laughs> So that done. I don't know. It's been done. Remember there was a, a an animated series, Muppet Babies? <laughs> Remember? I always pitched Cheers Babies, <laughs> you know? See little baby Norm drinking beer and everything. I thought that, that would be a, a great reboot. Do you think that it's been discussed about, you know, completely reinventing the characters? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I think it's been discussed. 15 different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, the other question is whether or not Glenn and Les Charles would be interested in doing anything like that. Mm-hmm. And um, the sense I get is no. And what do, you, what do you think about the whole reboot era? To me, it just speaks of desperation. <laughs> you know, that there are so few good ideas that, you know, nowadays with all of the clutter that's going on, you have to have some kind of franchise, some hook that the audience can relate to going in. Mm-hmm. That's why on Broadway, it's, you know, all of the Broadway musicals right. are adaptations of movies or Disney features, things like that. But you're talking about network. But so for, for the network, at least if you put on Roseanne, at least if you put on Will and Grace you're going to have an awareness factor going in and hopefully the show will catch on. Mm -hmm. And the other thing too is I think in this day and age, it used to be you would hope a show would be a hit for five years. Okay. If Will and Grace does well enough that they get two seasons out of it before it peters out, I think they'll be thrilled. Mm -hmm. I think they'll be thrilled. So, it's always weird because if you want to see Murphy Brown at its best, watch the original Murphy Brown. Mm-hmm. If you want to see Will and Grace at its best, watch the original Will and Grace. You know, you're seeing these people older and sometimes, you know, the characters don't necessarily age well. I mean, imagine a sequel of Romy and Michelle. <laughs> 
<laughs> Would you want to see those two women still doing that at 50? <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah, I, I just, I don't personally watch, I watch Last Man on Earth, but other than that, I don't think I watch, I've watched any network um, comedies. It's sad to say, because I really, I grew up with them, I, I've written, I, right. I, I love them, but they, I, maybe they just don't speak to me anymore. Do you, what do you watch? The marvelous Miss Maisel, I I sort of enjoyed, and but that not. I'm talking network. Do you watch oh, network, network shows? You know, I I do appreciate that. Uh, Mom is pretty well written. Uh, I would say I can't say I've seen an episode. I, I, of it, I would say probably Mom. Um, I used to like Fresh Off the Boat, and it's kind of gotten to where it is stale. Mm. Uh, used to like Modern Family, and it's gotten to the point where it's it's stale. Uh, I love the middle. Mm. Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. love the middle, you know, and that didn't get any Emmy, you yeah. know, love. Yeah. So, yeah, it is it is very difficult these days. Oh, boy, Last Man Standing is back. Great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. Okay, last question, uh-huh. and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Well, the Murphy question already put me on the spot. Oh, well, I'm going to put you on the spot even more. <laughs> now, bear in mind, this is coming from someone who did After Mash. And wrote Mannequin 2. Okay? Uh-huh. You were involved in a sitcom <laughs> that got canceled going. after one episode. Yeah. The Heather Graham show, Emily's Reasons Why Not. What happened? It couldn't have been that bad. Well, what I happened? Think, I think it's because there was a question mark at the end of that, uh, the, the show title. Okay. Improper punctuation i think that was there you go large. it's not a question we'll accept that it's not a question <laughs> um i was brought in to uh it, it was let's just say it was having some difficulties right uh, as and, certain shows do creatively <laughs> and so i was asked to come in and, and and help sort of get it on track i i didn't really relate to the show but everything's worth doing it had a terrific staff that wasn't really being utilized. I helped to sort of get the thing on track, and um, we had a we had a premiere party that was also <laughs> so a rap party, a rap party, and it was the first time in history that that had ever happened before. And I was actually uh, I was so spent in I think the two or three months that I spent there. I didn't, uh-huh. So nothing that I ever did or worked on ever made it to the screen because that episode was just the uh, original show creator who was still the ep of the show to me it just was not a it was not a show that were the ratings that bad i mean Uh, you know what what i heard was abc which i think is where it aired yes um i think it was steve mcpherson i think they spent as much to produce it and to market it as they spent on lost I seem to remember a number like $8 million at the time. There were billboards everywhere. Oh, let me yeah. tell you, my very first yeah. day of work, which coincidentally was this first day of shooting, that shows you how much trouble <laughs> the show was in. I was living in the Palisades at the time, and it took about an hour to get to Sunset Gower. And I left my house, you know, just left full of, you know, vim and vigor. <laughs> and I started to see, oh, there's a bus with, with uh, Heather Graham's face on it. Oh, you know, maybe another half mile. Oh, there's a there's a um, a bench, a bus bench. Oh, that's Heather Graham too. 
oh, there's a billboard with advertising the show. By the time I got to Sunset Gower, which I don't know how, nine miles away, I thought, oh, my God, the show is fucked. <laughs> it can't possibly, no show could live up to this much hype. And, and you know, I think it was finding its legs, but no one got to see that. It was, and nothing could really survive that kind of, those kinds of expectations. I, I don't think I ever, I maybe met Heather once. I was just up in the writer's room. And this is not me trying to distance myself from anything. You know, everyone was trying to do the best yeah. they could. But it was, I, I was actually very, very relieved <laughs> that, <laughs> that I could walk away from that uh, premiere party. Well, it's not unique. CBS in 1996 had a series called Public Morals, mm. which was Stephen Bochco and Jay Tarsus trying to do a comedy version of Hill Street Blues. Mm. And not only was that canceled after one episode, but our series followed it. Oh, and we got canceled. Which one was that? Almost perfect. The Nancy oh, Travis oh, right, show. Right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, we got canceled because they got, you know, still in those days, shows are getting 16 shares and things like that. And I got like a five. <laughs> I thought we were the only. It was a half hour? Or yeah, right? half hour. I thought we were the only. No, one that you were the gone. first. Oh, this is. Wait a minute. So when did this air? Like in 96. Oh, so this followed. Ah. Family. So. So we were the first. So, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, oh wow. Congratulations. I, yeah, thanks. Yeah. yeah, okay. Billy, thanks very much. Um, My pleasure. Have fun next time you're over in, uh, in Russia. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and again, uh, you know, anyone who has any problems with anything I said about Russia can vine. Right. It's, it's we'll HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That's where you write. You write to me. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. And that will do it for episode 78 of Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister Butler and to Howard Hoffman, and this week to Bill Diamond. If you want to get in touch with me, I gave you the email address before, but I'll do it again Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. You can also follow me on Twitter. Why are you not following me on Twitter already, for gosh sakes? At Ken Levine. And I'm on Instagram as well, Hollywood and Levine. We will see you again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.